With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Uh, a little different this week. We are going to speak with Pam Shriver, whom you all know, a uh, good friend. And Pam and I are going to unveil what we are calling the Shriver Wertheim plan. This is uh, to bolster tennis in the United States. This is a bit, uh, a bit of a random one, but this started out sort of as a fun thought exercise discussion we had in Australia. And the more I think both of us thought about it and, and texted each other over the next few days, uh, the, the more we thought this actually might have a possibility of working. And then I bounced this idea off some uh, high-ranking folks at the NBA. That's a spoiler alert. And they seemed intrigued as well. So this is um, this is a bit of a strange one. We have some, some tennis chatter. Uh, I thought Pam had some really interesting things to say about Serena Williams, by the way. Uh, we start with that. And then we unveil the Schreiber-Wertheim plan for uh, how the USTA can augment its place in uh, the sports world and perhaps how another sports league could acquire uh, an asset. So we're going to make this like, we'll make this like a meal. We'll start with an appetizer and a little uh, tennis talk just to, before we get to the okay, Andre, perfect. before we get to the Andre course. We are now about 10 days post Melbourne. Unfortunately, already the injuries are coming. I don't know if you saw Osaka pulling out with a, a back injury. Of uh of Dubai, we hope she's better by Indian Wells. What uh I don't know what t- ten days later, what's still sticking in your craw about what you saw in Australia? Well, I think um, probably the first thing I still think of is just the one five uh, defeat of Serena from from being up in the third set to Pliskova. Uh, you know, five one serving match point foot fault. Thirty seconds later, sprained ankle. And that changed the face of uh, the tournament, even though it was late. Right. Uh, we, it was a point away from the Osaka-Serena rematch. And I think it's one thing that women's tennis the last decade has really missed, even 20 years, is having that thrilling rematch in the next major. But um, as it was, uh, it, it proved that Osaka is big time, because when you can win your first major and then follow it up the very next major, we know it only happens about uh, recently, about every you know, 18 to 20 years. Uh, so she proved how special she is. And, and Kvitova being in a major final again was a tremendously emotional story. And I think on the men's side, just Djokovic's quality from start to finish to now hold three majors in a row and to go for his second Novak slam is quite amazing. We uh, were in a much different place a year ago. Wait, I want to go back. I'll, I'll go back to two things. Did you happen to catch Kvitova's testimony that she had to give in conjunction with her attack a few days ago. Did you happen to catch that? I, I saw that she gave it. Uh, I saw it on uh, social media. I did not take the time to listen to it. I've had quite the exciting week with my kids. With uh, They're in two championship 
games tomorrow afternoon, and I feel like I've been running from sporting event to sporting event at a different level. So I have not been on social media as much as usual the last couple of days. Um, your time is better spent with your kids' sporting events than on social media. <laughs> but uh, su- suffice to say, I found it remarkable that um, Petra Kvitova played in a major final a few days before she was asked to give this this chilling graphic account. Um, but I want to. Can we go back real quick to Serena? Because yes. I feel like I'm totally with you. I feel like that was a real inflection point for the entire tournament. I think with the specter of the women's final at the 2018 U.S. Open hovering, um, I, I thought Serena really quite admirably downplayed any sort of controversy. I thought that whole interval was really weird. I mean, Serena didn't win a single point again on her serve after that ankle sprain, and yet there was no medical timeout. Pliskova later said she didn't realize Serena was injured. Um, I mean, you can, I, I don't know, you were courtside, I think. I mean, that, that foot yeah, fault was, call was, yeah. I thought, the foot fault. I mean, I don't think anyone's saying, oh, it's it's 5-1 in the third set. This would be a good time to sabotage Serena Williams. But it did it did seem like no. a bit of a strange call. What That, that whole, I, I feel like in part because maybe we had fatigue after the U.S. Open, everybody kind of glossed over it. And it was, boy, what a pity Serena couldn't close and Pliskova's into the semis. But I, I feel like we all kind of glossed over that a bit. Thoughts? I, I think, I think feel it was glossed over uh, on purpose by, uh, I, I don't think Serena Williams and company wanted to have a big controversy again right after what happened at the U.S. Open. And obviously, because it wasn't a final, it wasn't going to be as big. And Serena handled herself. She kind of shut down emotionally. I felt she detached from the match at that moment, combined the foot fault, and then 30 seconds later, the first rally after the footfall, spraining the ankle, right. I feel like it was no coincidence. I think her brain was absolutely flooded in a, in a private way with past situations, uh, particularly at the U.S. Open. She'd been pretty much, um, she escaped major controversy at the Australian Open for the most part. But that footfall, that word footfall deep in a match, yeah. I think goes back 10, 10 years ago to the U.S. Open in the Clijsters match. I think her brain would have gone immediately to the Osaka controversy. She made sure that she stayed in her lane, but I think it threw her off. Because how can you have a footfall match point up when you're up 5-1, and then the next rally, your body not operate the same way, and, and your ankle gets sprained? I think they're related. We'll never know. It's my hypothesis on this, but... If the footfall isn't called, she doesn't sprain her ankle. You you think that? You think there's that much of a connection? Absol- absolutely. Wow. It's too mu- it's it's too, too much. I know too much the way the brain works. I've had too many times on the tennis court when you have a flood of emotion that you even try to keep. It's almost worse if you try to keep that flood of. Uh, you know, your brain's going a zillion miles an hour. You're trying to process what's happened. You need to hit a second serve. You haven't had a foot fault called. I, I didn't observe one from her the whole tournament, but I didn't see her play every every service game. But for that to have happened at that stage, and she won 9 of 11 games. So she was on such a roll. And, and then for her to have her first ankle sprain in the tournament, not that she hasn't had them before, but I absolutely think it was a – it was a mind-body-related experience that caused it. Wow. And you think that's why she didn't 
call for the trainer, leave the court, have this retaped. I mean, again, Pliskova said, I didn't realize until you just told me that she was even injured. Well, sitting courtside, I you could just see a, you could see immediate. I couldn't see until the replay how much it rolled. I could just see immediately after the point that she was reaching down to her foot in a way that signified she had rolled her ankle. And then when I saw it on the monitor, the replay, it wasn't just you know you have so many different degrees. This it was a pretty significant. I mean, and she's she's a big, strong athlete. And that kind of a you know weight going down on an ankle that's turned. I mean, obviously she injured herself. Right. You could tell she couldn't go up after the serve. Her mile per hour dropped off, and then and then it just dissipated. The lead dissipated, you know, in a totally different way. The way Wozniacki's uh, escape one five down the year before to end up winning the tournament. It happened in a totally different scenario. But people always think two breaks is such an insurmountable lead. Well, guess what? It's not. I mean, Todd Martin can tell you that from a Wimbledon semifinal, uh, Wozniacki against Fett, and then this situation with the. It's just unexpected. The greatest female player in many people's eyes of all time to lose a major match from 5 1 up. You, you know what? Uh, you, you've had me think that in sports, sometimes we have this very sort of artificial taxonomy that this shorthand of was it mental or was it physical? This is still another Both. example hearing you say this, that there is not that distinction. They play off each other uh, more than more than we might think, don't they? Sure. Absolutely. And talking to, a, say, a brain specialist uh, that can tell you a lot more than I can, I'll um, definitely make that for sure. Um, well, that was, uh, this was just supposed to be the appetizer course before we uh, hit our real subject. But that was, um, thank you. That's, that's. Very interesting and substantive and gives people a lot to think about. Because I, I, I do think the whole thing was just so strange that it was, I mean, we, as you say, we were one point away from this Osaka-Serena rematch. Serena's winning 5-1. We have a footfault call. There's an awful lot of history there, as you allude to. We have an injury. And we also have, you know, Serena Williams on the brink of history, 37 years old, everything that came with it. And then... Serena, again, to her, to her credit, I really doused this, and she didn't make excuses, and there, there really was a fairly conventional press conference, and then it was like, all right, well, we've gone to the, on to the semifinals, and I feel like that never and, quite got its due. Yeah. Two, two quick things. I did ask a couple of my—I don't think I asked you, but I asked a couple of my media friends who generally are in, in the press conferences, why didn't anyone ask specifically about the footfall to Serena? and about whether or not it affected her. But then the other thing is I think we have to just tell people who are listening today that she did have three match points a couple games later on Pliskova's serve. And mm-hmm. Pliskova played three exceptional points. There was one second serve return, a backhand that Serena crushed cross-court. Pliskova reached with an open racket face. And if Serena had been on her A game physically, mentally, there's no way she lets that open slice backhand land. She moves inside the court, but she'd really struggled with some swing volleys, made mess of them earlier, and it just she didn't feel confident enough to do it. That was her that was her final window to still end the match, but wasn't meant to be. And I'll I'll give you uh, another one. I think Serena is playing a sparse schedule as as she should be, as as Federer and uh, you know as Nadal to some extent. I mean this this is how we prolong careers, right? You can't go chasing points every week. But I always wonder, what does it do to these players in their late 30s 
when their entire schedule is so tailored to these majors? What sort of pressure do they go into these majors with when everything is pointing to these four events every year and the rest is, is sandwich filling? I mean, Serena knows that if well, she doesn't close this match, she's not playing a meaningful match in her mind until May. Right. Well, I think that's a that's a problem that the camp has to address. I mean, it's either she's either got to she's got to be all in, uh, and that means playing some tour events for sure. And she also needs to be all in with her uh, physical commitment to being in the best shape that she's been in in her 30s. That's literally she has to have a goal to be. And I know she's been in amazing shape most of her 30s. Uh, she's coming up on long enough time since having the baby that she needs to just make this commitment to herself that she, if for her to go out on her own terms, she needs to be in the best shape she's been in since she turned 30. And if she can do that, then she's your Wimbledon favorite for sure. Yep. She might yep. even win the French, but I don't think she can do it. Uh, being a st- given the quality of women's tennis, how it's gone up, since she since she went on maternity leave a couple of years ago, the quality is up from top to bottom. She can't afford to not be in the best shape she's been in. Right. Um, I mean, I guess if you're, if you're her camp, you say you, you've knocked on the door. You know, I mean, she's she's 19 and three in Grand Slam matches since her return. So it's not as though, boy, you've really got your work cut out. You're having trouble getting out of week one. I mean, she's she's right there. But I yep. I just wonder if if these matches aren't freighted. You know, it's sort of like the uh, sort of like the Roberta Vinci match. This, these matches become so freighted with pressure that it doesn't become about the tennis anymore. Anyway, um, uh, wow, that was uh, Pam. You came with your A game, and we haven't even. Uh... <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I don't know how to set this up. You, you and I were talking uh, as as we do casually during these events, and we were talking about some of the flux in tennis, and we're going to call this the the Shriver. Wertheim plan. You go first. Uh, this was really your uh, brainchild, and we just sort of added some bells and whistles. But we were discussing that Gordon Smith, the chief—I don't know what his official title is—chief administrative officer, head, head of executive director of uh, the USTA, has announced that he is stepping down at the end of the year. And while I, I don't think this is directly correlated, I think this is a good opportunity to reassess and perhaps reconfigure and re- rethink. And do you want to? Uh, do you want to unveil sure. your outside-the-box opportunity for the USTA? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I enjoy doing is um, thinking outside the box and thinking of different ideas for tennis. A lot of times uh, people listen, and a lot of times they don't. Um, the last couple of years, I've put a lot of my philanthropic energy towards an after-school program in Carson, California, called First Break Academy that helps elementary age school kids that ordinarily wouldn't be playing tennis. They would be playing much more a sport like basketball. And it introduces the sport of tennis alongside uh, a sport they're very familiar with in basketball. So there's a group of kids down in Carson that now have fallen in love with tennis, but they also at the same program still play basketball and they feed off each other. They are very complimentary in their uh, physical nature, the running, the stopping and the starting, the footwork, the size of the court. Um, basketball was the last sport I ever played, got a varsity letter in in high school before I single focused on tennis. And the more and more I sort of thought about the fact that inside tennis right now, in my 40-some years of being involved in pro tennis, 
it's really having its some of its worst political strife from within. And it's very so fractured anyway that it's sometimes feels very difficult to look for strong partnerships within the entities of tennis. So I want to just float the idea, and I floated it with you, and you sort of understood it immediately that USTA, in the, in the new era after Gordon Smith, instead of looking just for an individual to hire as the new CEO of the USTA, look for uh, another sports entity, another league that has great leadership, that has a track record of being terrific, marketing their product, marketing their sport, treating their athletes with respect, connecting well with uh, the general public who watch the game, play the game. And, um, you know, so then I kept thinking about the NBA and the way they've been run under David Stern and under Adam Silver, the quality of organization and some of the connections we share in tennis, which is men and women love to play both tennis and basketball the WNBA is a, is, a, is, a, is a league that's still trying to find its feet, and I feel like tennis and the USTA leading the way in 73 with equal prize money at the U.S. Open has proven that men and women can compete uh, in the same sport, at the same event, uh, in equal status. Um, not saying that WNBA players will be on the same par with LeBron James uh, or Steph Curry going forward, but just saying it's a sport that sets a great example, tennis, to another sport that's trying to figure out how do we capitalize on the growth industry of female professional sports. And there's a lot of other symmetries, which I think you need to pick up on and some things we've discussed. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a really intriguing idea. It is unquestionably outside the box, but I think that at some level, it's, at some point you have to make some 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 gambles here and, and do things differently. I think it's interesting. I mean, I think you, you talked about it from the participation angle, and I think it's really interesting from a business angle. I mean, the, the NBA is a league that has great success. They have a media infrastructure. They have technology and sponsorship, and they're ahead of the field on sports betting and esports. And as you say, there are this basketball-tennis overlaps, um, I mean, I think it doesn't hurt that the pro section, the, the pro season for American tennis, mostly August and then culminating with the U.S. Open, is not during NBA season. They have experience sort of running a separate league from within the WNBA that, that you reference. The U.S. Open is a great hospitality opportunity for a New York-based business. I think there's a lot of win-win here. I mean, you look at the NBA and what are their goals? Well, they're still looking to expand internationally. There is a play for a female audience. Tennis's wealthy demographic never hurts. I think there are a lot of, you know, I, I, I hate this word, but I think, I think there are uh, a, a lot of synergies here. And it doesn't hurt that the commissioner's brother, uh, Adam Silver's brother, Eric Silver, is a, is a teaching pro at, in Boca Raton. I mean, there, there's some sort of fun anecdotal overlap. But I just think this is this. I mean, you you got me thinking, and, and I'm not sure there's anything structurally or organizationally that would prevent this. I mean, I, I don't know. My guess is the NBA would be much more interested in the pro tennis side than in the community tennis side. But that's the kind of thing that that can be negotiated. And I bounce this off. I mean, I, I should say too that um, after we discuss this, I bounce this off. Uh, I, I will say high high ranking individuals at the NBA, and there, there was some real 
intrigue and curiosity. I mean, I, I think it's, this is very, we're all, we're all conceding this is very much outside the box. This isn't how the USTA tends to do business. But here we have an established sports league with a lot of infrastructure that has a proven track record and all the ambitions and, and objectives of the USTA and all the ambitions and objectives of the NBA on a different scale, mind you. Uh, there's, there's a lot of overlap there. And I, I think this is a really, really intriguing idea. Well, it's also really interesting, like, uh, when you, when you saw like Francis Tiafo and how he was relating to, uh, what LeBron James does after big moments in his career, when he ran, when, uh, Francis got to the quarterfinals and there's so many, and whether it's Nick Kyrgios, his love of basketball, sort of sometimes lamenting that he didn't go that direction. And you actually have some NBA players. I mean, I go back to one of my home Maryland heroes growing up and in my early pro days, John Lucas, uh, Hall of Famer, great player, great coach, played on the University of Maryland varsity team and actually got got to the finals of a U.S. Open mixed doubles with Renee Richards. So that's back in the late 70s. Um, I think it's Gordon Haywood who's played some great tennis. Mm-hmm. Dirk, Dirk Nowitzki growing up. Tennis helped him become a great basketball player. Wilt Chamberlain used to come out and watch us play when we played at the Manhattan Beach Country Club, uh, the L.A. Tour Stop. Um, there's just been a lot of crossover. I feel like tennis players, whether it's Roger Federer, they love to go courtside and watch the NBA um, I've interviewed during my years uh, at ESPN at the U.S. Open, where, the, where it's Carmelo Anthony, who's from my hometown of Baltimore, um, or Adam Silver this year in the President's Box. He was a great interview. This is well before this idea ever came up in my head. But my last question to him before I threw it back upstairs to Chris Fowler or whoever was in the booth, it was like, Adam said, hang on a second, I've got to i got to put in a plug tomorrow about the WNBA finals on ESPN. It's at such and such a time. And I'm like, wow, for him to be watching, I think we were watching Roger Federer at the time, for him to be able to like do that kind of a pivot, great promo. I'm like, obviously, they're sharp people. They're, they have an amazing organization from outside. Being a sports fan, I feel like it's been the, one of the best-run leagues over decades. And tennis – USTA, if it finds a partner that will enhance its business and vice versa, it will get the total attention of the tennis world like no organization well, ever I has. Mean, exactly. I mean, that's that's part of this as well, that if, if this were to work, this is an opportunity that could be scaled. This is an opportunity that uh, could, could carry over to other tennis organizations. Um, I mean, again, you're, you're talking, I mean, you mentioned the WNBA. I mean, the NBA has a track record of essentially sort of running a, a separate, smaller-scale league from within. And, again, I, I think this is very outside the box for the folks at the USTA. I mean, this obviously is giving up a measure of, uh, of control. But I, I just think this is uh, the, sort of the, mo- the more I think about it, the, the I even tried to play devil's advocate, I couldn't really talk myself out of it. I'm, I'm not sure there's anything structurally or e- even in the, in the bylaws that would prevent this. And it, it just it, you know, it it makes too much sense. It's kind of an interesting thing that happened out here with the Southern California Tennis Association in the last 10 days, uh, which is one of the 17 sections and has the richest history of producing the greatest talent, uh, either Florida or Southern Cal. But Southern Cal, amazing. They just hired Marla Messing, who ran uh, some great women's soccer 
events in World Cup and uh, was uh, just has great experience. She loves to, happens to love tennis as well, but she comes from a soccer background. So it's kind of interesting that one of the USTA sections has just put, a, quote unquote, like a soccer person in charge of the section as its executive director. So why not take it all the way to the top? And I don't know. I just think I would see it as being like it's a way of it the NBA growing, um, and Adam Silver would be, we've always wondered who would be the commissioner of tennis. We've thrown it around for decades. Well, I nominate Adam Silver would be an amazing commissioner for U.S. tennis as well, even if the rest of the world didn't necessarily at first come along. I think it would go a long way to growing tennis, and I think it would also keep basketball as a growth sport, and I think it would send a great signal to parents, coaches, that we don't need to have our kids specialize too early and that you can have two sports and, and play them and enjoy them and they complement each other in a great way, both from a viewing standpoint, a participation, and a business standpoint. All right. We, uh, we, we throw this out there, and um, <laughs> who, who knows where this will go, but um, I, I think there's – you, you mentioned the politics, and I'm, I'm totally – you've been in the sport longer than I have. Um, I've never seen anything like this, though. Where it's terrible. there is so it's much terrible. turf warring, and it's all at some level, it's sort of terrifically counterintuitive as well. I mean, it's it's self defeating. It's uh, you know, it's not not in, in the best some, interest of the in sport. Something big needs to happen to shake it up, to have it change because it's going backwards. I mean, the turf wars that are happening now are making the sport seem small and petty and not right. grow. And um, I just think partnerships, we've seen it in media companies, we've seen it in other companies, mergers and partnerships that work, um, when they work well, it's awesome. The, both businesses are better for it. And I think tennis would be better right. for it, particularly in the United States. And that's the tennis I care most about, women's tennis and tennis in the USA. I, I would just add that this would not be charity. I mean, I think tennis has some real assets that are of interest to the NBA. And whether it's you know, experimenting with, with streaming or whether it's sort of tapping into the sport that has a much higher female demographic, um, I think there's some real virtues here. So any, anyway, we, uh, we throw that idea out there. Well, it's fun. It's, been, fun. it's, in, fun. Uh, it's, it's been a fun it's thought exercise. Fun nothing else. Um, let, well, let, let, me, let me close by sort of asking you about uh, State of state of tennis, and uh, let's let's say I mean I, I we talked a lot about how women's tennis actually seems to be in a very comfortable position right now, but let's let's talk about American tennis because this week went quietly, but the New Haven event uh, we we all got an email saying the New Haven event sanction was was being sold, and that event is moving to China. There are now more pro events in China than there are in the U.S. Um, you know, I, I think the question a lot of us always have is how much of this is just the forces of globalization and we're never going to have this high concentration of American players. I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I also think that, you know, the, the more you're around the sport, you realize there's some real flaws structurally uh, within the USTA. And a lot of times I, I, I always say if this were, you know, if if you saw participation graphics, would this be a company you'd want to invest in? If you saw some of the hiring decisions, would, would you think that this was a, a well-run company? Um, what do you think about State of American Tennis right now? Um, I think pockets of it are, are very strong, but I think the potential is 
is never fully reached uh, in organizationally, business-wise, how it markets itself. Um, I don't see... I don't see it growing in the areas that are so important for tennis, which is getting people to play and then they follow it. And so I'm, I'm, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit upsetting. And yet every year we go to the U S open and it's one of the most exciting sporting events of the entire calendar. And that is the jewel of American tennis, but other aspects of tennis needs to be run just as well. And, um, you know, I think I think it can. I think um, we need we need great leaders and we need different ideas. And I just feel like if you operate only within the sport of tennis, um, or or predominantly within the sport of tennis, it worldwide it just beats you down. It doesn't make you a growth company. Right. It, it, it the atmosphere of professional tennis, including the ITF and everything involved, ATP, WTA. It just doesn't make sense. So you have to make sense from outside of tennis. So if I say, how is tennis doing in America? You know, to me, they're too afraid of everything from too many people playing pickleball. I mean, I'm like saying, have people play pickleball. If if more people have better hand-eye coordination, guess what? They'll be better tennis players. We need people that aren't afraid of a racket and a ball. They want to be, we want people to understand and have fun with a racket and a ball. I don't care if it's ping pong, pickleball, tennis, paddle. Let's stop the turf wars within racket sports. Let's embrace all of it. Let's say if you pick up one racket, guess what? Pick up another racket. And tennis is still the most longstanding, the most lucrative, the most watched racket sport. Let's not feel petty about something that's trendy, that's doing well like pickleball. Let's figure out how to get into their kitchen. I feel like you mentioned the U.S. Open, and I feel like that's always the fundamental tension here that you have this wildly successful event in the United States. I mean, other sports franchises would kill for the profit and the suites and the hospitality. Um, you know, who, who knows what, what it will look like going forward, but the, the media contracts, and then you have this disconnect between those two weeks and the other 50 weeks of the year. And is this a nonprofit company that's trying to grow a sport, or is this a company that's putting on this wildly successful international two-week sporting event? And I, I always think that the imbalance and the lack of symmetry between the two weeks of the U.S. Open, when it's celebrities and tennis is the hippest thing in the world, and um, full suites and you know nine figures of profit, versus what tennis looks like the other 50 weeks is something that we all need to reckon with. Um, anyway, uh, this is we, we've hit our half hour mark and um, I'm, I'm not sure I, I think I think we got our point across. What do you think? I think did we, we miss did. anything? I think we did. Yeah this, this, this is one of these things that sort of started as a thought exercise and the more you undertook it and the more you sort of laid out column A and column B, by the end of our conversation, I'm like, that's a terrific idea. We need to take these to uh, decision makers. Yeah. I just wish I had an MBA and could sit down and write like the business plan that would turn everybody's heads and say, aha, this is how it's going to be implemented. But maybe somebody who has that skill set will do it. I was going to say, you've just uh, inadvertently given a project to uh, 
to every <laughs> MBA out there. Um, all right, this is great. We, we are going to uh, we're going to follow up on this, you and I. But I thought we would throw it out there, and, and maybe people have thoughts. Um, I think it's good to just articulate these things, and people can pick it apart and add and delete as, as they see fit. But I do think it's it's not just intriguing, but something that uh, I think really people would ought to do well to sort of undertake and push forward. So anyway, um, always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks, John. And uh, it's been fun. It's been fun. We'll see you soon. All right. See you in the desert. Thanks, Pam. Bye-bye. All right. That's our guest this week, the lovely, the talented Pam Shriver. Uh, thanks to Pam for spending some time here. Uh, we, we thought about writing this as an op-ed, and then we I think we both reached the decision. Maybe we just talk it through and uh, let people have at it that way since it's more of a an idea than a manifesto but uh jamie Lasanti, uh nice to have you with us you were listening to that uh i don't think did you know where we were going with that did no. i give you a heads up no uh sorry i'm a little bit but you didn't really explain any details well i mean so the idea in short is treat american professional tennis and the usta as you would the wnba and it sort of becomes a division within the NBA. And does the NBA have interest in the sectional politics in, in Texas? Probably not. But is the NBA an outfit that's really well positioned with a track record that speaks for itself of running professional event, a big event like the U.S. Open, of growing a sport through media, of partnerships and technology? And again, I think there are a lot of assets that make tennis attractive to the NBA. I don't think this is a charity case. I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot tennis can bring to the table that conforms with some of the NBA's um, objectives and gross areas too. What, what do you think? I, I agree with that. My one concern or the one thing I think of is that the WNBA does not compete in like a larger right. competition right. space. Right. So, I mean, the USTA as like a singular, if you're comparing it to being exactly like the WNBA, the the USTA in American tennis competes in either the W uh, the WTA or the ATP, and so like they're part of a a larger. Yeah, I mean, I think that. So you mean compete with the NBA or compete within tennis? Because I because I think I, something I mean, that's significant here is that the American tennis season is August and September when the WNBA is in season, but the NBA is not. So I think the NBA would probably feel better about taking this on at a time when there aren't professional basketball games and i think you know maybe this is something that grows i mean maybe this is something that a sport really needs to consider i mean i i don't know why if this were a conventional business tennis would be ripe for some sort of merger and acquisition or buyout i mean i think people would say you've got a lot of assets it needs to be better run the mckinsey consultants would come in and tennis would be prime for sale we don't think of it that way because it's a standalone sport but this is essentially saying that there's someone better positioned to run tennis than the current governors and infrastructure. I think it makes sense. I guess I'm a little, it's a little confusing to me, but I see, I see the benefits. Um, but what I just don't, what doesn't add up for me is just the like, I don't know. Are you speaking specifically about American tennis only? Yeah. I think right. when you start with the USDA, right. And you essentially say there's going to be a division within the NBA that runs American tennis and it's, negotiated with White Plains. And again, I mean, there's still a reason for the USTA to exist, but you're basically getting the professionals to ramp up this sport in the United States. And maybe there's growth areas beyond that if this is a success, but you start with the NBA is really good at running a sport and they're really good at setting up 
technology and media and marketing their athletes and expanding to new markets and using social media and but sports the gambling. Play for the league. I mean, technically, as a tennis player, you, you're you're not playing for you're playing for yourself. Like you and you're entering in tournaments and you're winning prize money from individual tournaments. Right. So if you're a USTA player and I'm a USTA player. Yeah, I mean, we can make different we can have different schedules and make our money in different ways. And the USTA can give us money and paychecks in different ways. Whereas if we're both WNBA players, we can be on different teams, but we're both getting money from a WNBA team and we're playing for that. WNBA yeah, no, that's 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 a fair point. I mean, again, I I think I think this is just having an outfit with some experience here and a track record. Lift, lift more all as, as a management. Yeah, exactly. Type of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'm anyway. thinking more on a player level, but um, it's interesting. No, I mean even, even I mean I think as long as you raise a point, it's it's really an interesting. I think this is sort of something interesting that that vexes tennis in general, right? That uh, the Australian Open can't. I mean, at some level, they what's what's their jurisdiction over Roger Federer, right? I mean, the the Golden State Warriors can tell Steph Curry he's got to meet with season ticket holders. Listen, we're paying you, and this is in your contract, and you've got to do media afterwards, and you've got to come to this tour of our new facility. What is the jurisdiction of any of these events over the player? I don't know. There are a number number (laughs) of issues that would have to be worked through, but I just it's essentially uh, a buyout situation. Uh, anyway, anything, uh, you told me I had to be open-minded, so yeah, I see it's, it. it's, out, it's outside the box, <laughs> but, sure. um, again, Pam brought it to my attention as more on the participation side, I think, but I thought of it more in terms of the business side and, um, especially a media technology, sports gambling, esports, hospitality, running an event side. And it just seems like this would be a way for the USTA really to upgrade and, um, Anyway, what uh, February is a bit of a strange month in tennis. We do have an indoor event. I think it's the only only indoor event. Is that possible in the United States? Uh, the New York Open starts next week. Uh, a mere 45-minute Long Island Railroad trip from here. Um, we already see some injuries, unfortunately, from players coming off Australia. And then before you know it, we'll be, uh, we'll be off to the desert. Strange month, February. I uh, I wanted to just mention you you mentioned it to Pam, but Petra Kvitova about her having to testify. Um, it's really remarkable that she sort of had to recount that and face the guy. Um, I mean that's that's a terrible situation for anyone, but obviously I think for her she kind of said um, you know she's done so much to move past that, and because the Australian Open was such a big milestone for that um so for her to have to go back to that place yeah exactly so soon after is so just i mean you feel for her and you read the details that um you know maybe she talked about but no one has asked her about it in a very long time um the the details and the you know the, the just blood chilling. and I mean, what just, she had to do and right. and then like to see the man again i mean i'm sure i would probably have nightmares about that kind of thing you know for months and years after right. so for her to see that guy again and have to go through everything i mean the other thing that i it's sort of been whispered about and i want to be careful here but what's becoming clear is that this was not necessarily a random attack and the fact that it was her left hand and the fact that uh you know it's we're going to learn more as this unfolds but no these this goes to our theme a bit from last week but these tennis players this this athlete's soul is unique. I mean, uh, that that she would 
play in a Grand Slam final, fly across an ocean, and within a few days later be in a courtroom recounting that really says a lot about uh, sort of this emotional nimbleness as, as much as every everything else. Um, all right. That, uh, that should do it for this week. We have another guest next week. Uh, I understand there have been some complaints about audio quality. The speakerphone want- plus voice memo when we're uh, on the road <laughs> is not doing it for you. Is that what you're saying? I yes, uh, I want to apologize for our audio quality. Uh, you, you know, bear I have no I, responsibility. I that's have very no big of you. Control over your uh, uh, cell phone a recording function qualities. Function of my travel schedule. You bear no responsibility. This sounds much better now. Uh, if people were so inclined, where would they subscribe, leave a review, or uh, a complaint about audio quality? <laughs> Please. Well, I appreciate them letting us know, uh, but I did see some complaints. In our iTunes reviews, so I'm glad people are reviewing, but I hope that our reviews go back to five stars and not one and two stars about audio quality. At least the complaints uh, are about audio quality, not content. <laughs> I guess so. Yes, fixable, controllable problems here. Where would people be leaving these reviews? Uh, you iTunes speak of? is a great place. Uh, they should subscribe while they're there because if you do leave a bad review, you want to subscribe so you get a notification about a very good audio podcast. All right. Thanks, Jamie. We'll do it again next week. Sounds good. Thanks, everyone.